Hey guys, this is Jordan, your show host, and also one of the founders of the Tribe Mastermind. I just wanted to give you guys a little shout out to let you know that we got something special going on with Tribe Mastermind. This is a high level mastermind for property management entrepreneurs that are interested in talking about the big picture. Yes, most certainly business, the tactical, the strategic, but also the big why behind why we're on this journey together. So if you're interested in learning more about Tribe, what this mastermind looks like, you can get more details at tribemastermind.com. Check it out. Love to see you there. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, closers. This is the Profitable Property Management Podcast, coming at you live. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and this is the place to come for weekly interviews with world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who open up and share their secret sauce so that you can apply their knowledge to grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100, 1,000, or 10,000 units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. Don't forget to join us in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group where we talk profit, share resources, and ask podcast guests follow-up questions after the interview. Today I'm interviewing Dan Butler. Dan and I have known each other for a while now. Dan is one of the co-founders with Douglas Skipworth of CrestCore based in Memphis. Dan, I've uh, had you on the show before, but I've got you back to talk about some interesting changes you guys have made. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great, great to be here. Dan, what is your role with CrestCore? Uh, co-founder with Douglas Skipworth. So we kind of split up some duties. Um, you know, I handle a lot of the business development side. Um, as well as kind of construction and maintenance. So that's kind of my role. Dan, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is to talk about what you guys are doing with remote team members. Anytime this subject comes up, you immediately stare in the face the distinction between VAs versus remote team members. A lot of folks view VAs as people that do low-level tasks. They're going to pay them very little money, and there's a lot of oversight required. And when folks go that route, a lot of times it's kind of like hiring, uh, employing a very specialized tool. It works if you know what you're doing with it. If you don't and you were expecting you were going to get a lot of competence for very little money. There's a lot of churn and burn. There's really a trail of tears behind folks that have tried to employ that strategy. Conversely, on the other side, we have remote team members, people that are 100% part of the team. They just don't physically work in the office. Within that spectrum or that nexus per se, the strategy that you guys have employed, where do you think it falls? You know, for us, it, it, it's fall, it falls on, you know, we definitely call them remote team members. Uh, we just look at it like they're part of our team, but they're just not here in Memphis, Tennessee. And, you know, I, I, I fall in the category, you get out of it what you put in it. And right. so it's a ton of work up front, um, especially around your standard operating procedures and your processes. Um, but, you know, and then we also use hiring um, uh just like we hire regular employees in Memphis, Tennessee, culture index, interview process, the whole nine yards. It's not just, you know, clicking 
you know, uh, grab a remote team or a virtual employee. It's, it's actually a, a hiring process. So it's not, uh, um, that simple. But what kind of scale are you guys at with your remote team? So we have, it's, it's been an interesting journey. You know, we started out for ourselves. We we worked, um, we started with planet synergy about five years ago and kind of used that third party, uh, concept and then kind of went to a, uh, direct model, uh, about a year and a half ago with a partner, uh, in the business. And then, uh, you know, about six months ago, we started our own, um, you know, remote team or business called core assist. So we've had 75 remote team members across seven different customers. Got it. So you guys have, you've blown past just servicing your own portfolio and you're now doing this for other companies. Well, and it's because of what you started with at the beginning of the podcast of just, you know, people look at it and it's just this unknown and this un, you know, uncertainty and just don't get it. And, you know, I tried it once and it failed miserably kind of, you know, you hear that a lot. And so we, it's not a, it's not a secret sauce really. It's just more of, you know, really digging in and, and getting your processes lined up of how you're going to hire them and who you're going to put them in the right seats. And, um, and then your standard operating procedures, once you get those nailed down, uh, you know, people from, it doesn't matter what country, what, you know, you know, remote team members, virtual employees, those, those have been around for years, you know, um, especially in the United States of just people remarking from home and those kind of things. It's no different. It's just, they happen to be thousands of miles away instead of hundreds of miles away. How many of those 75 are currently servicing the Crest Core portfolio? About 60. 60 to right. 65, yeah. Got it. So let's talk about the structure of Crest Core. Give me the different departments and how do the remote team members fit into that structure? So we basically have, you know, we've got accounting, we got client services, we've got maintenance and resident services. And then uh, we have marketing, we have the brokerage, uh, we have dispatching. So, you know, I can keep going on and on, but each, each department is broken up like that, kind of departmentalized. We kind of go the departmental method uh, from a property management standpoint. And then, you know, as we talked about our last podcast, you know, quite a few months ago, uh, we have our own separate maintenance company. So um, each, each remote team member, there's a group of them per department. And then there's a remote team member supervisor. And so that supervisor is, is handling the day-to-day of the remote team members um, functions within that accounting group or maintenance group or dispatch group. And then that, that remote team member supervisor rolls up to a manager on site here in Memphis, Tennessee um, that oversees uh, that, that supervisor who then oversees the you know, remote, remote team members underneath the supervisor. All right. And those on-site managers, they report to who? Are they you, you and Douglas's direct reports? No, they report to the um, uh, the manager for each business. We have a manager for property manager, property management, and we have a manager for uh, the maintenance business. And we have a manager for the brokerage. Got it. I'm taking notes on all those. Yeah. And then those three that you just mentioned, those are your direct reports. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. All right. I was hoping you were going to tell me there was another layer of management. Could could be. I mean, you're 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 doing well here, brother. You're working yourself out of a job. Um, working hard, trying. <laughs> so let's talk about how we got here. 
Mm-hmm. I this I do not believe all this was in place the last time that we talked, or at least it seems like there's there's been some scaling here of the remote piece since last time that we spoke. What flavors of management did you guys go through on the way to getting to this current structure? Yeah, so the last time we talked, we were basically just using Planet Synergy. Um, the third party, you know, that, that, that helps a lot of property management companies and they do a lot of the billing and those kind of things. And we just, you know, we're on version probably 6.0 and especially specifically in the property management business. We tried, you know, um, people that we hired that locally that we knew already knew property management. It's like, Oh wow, you did collections come on over and really found out quickly that that didn't work. Um, so we are probably on our fifth or sixth version of what we try to set up for our team and this latest version has just been an evolution. Like I said, we went to some conferences and learned about uh, virtual employees. And, you know, prior to that, let me back up. Prior to that, when I told you, you know, earlier, we, you know, kind of redid our management structure about two years ago. You know, we have a highly driven, highly focused team now. And so once they got into the um, remote team member mindset, and they dug in and truly tried to, you know, really figure it out. And so they all worked together and said, we're going to make a go of this and make it work. And uh, um, that's what's happened. All right. So how would you contrast the strategy that you're employing with Planet Synergy? Like this distinction that I made right out of the gate in the podcast of VAs versus remote team members. Do you intuit that as well? And if so, in practice, what does that actually, that distinction look like in terms of what you can get done with either ends of the spectrum? So with Planet Synergy, you know, it was, it was good for us at the time because, you know, we just, it just was processing paperwork. And, but with that model, you don't get to know the employee. You don't know, get to know who they are, anything about them, their family, um, how they work. You're just spitting it into a service and getting a, 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 you know, a return on that service on the remote team member side. So that's kind of what we're the VA model. I would say on the remote team member side, they're truly employees. And so they, they are part of our team. We have a, a core, uh, so internal intranet that they're all a part of. That's where all the SOPs they've, they've, um, put them on the intranet, uh, for everybody to see all the training. Um, uh, they post pictures and award each other, you know, for different things of, of achievements. And so, you know, they, they just, I mean, we have daily conversations and daily chats and, you know, uh, emails and all that kind of stuff. So they're truly just part of our day-to-day function. Got it. So in terms of the actual leverage that you're able to get with this new model, could we walk through some specific use cases that were aspirational, but inaccessible in the former paradigm, but that now you've really embraced whole hog and are seeing some positive results with this current team structure? Sure. So for me, what I think it's done for us and for our clients that we're helping, um, you know, in the property management world, I always, I always say, we're, you know, in the, the old model, it was more of a zone defense. And what I mean by that is, you know, you've got so many balls to try to, to, to carry, you know, what's, what's, what's one you're going to drop today. You know what I mean? Like what's the, the squeaky wheel, what's the most important, you're more in a reactive mode. And with the remote team member model, the paradigm shift for us is that we've been getting laser focused on who and what we can work on. So, um, you know, for example, uh, we have somebody that's solely dedicated to section eight inspections. 
you know, we have that used to be one of like 15 or 20 duties for somebody, you know, here in the States or, you know, in, in the Memphis office. Now, you know, for us to miss an inspection or not get an owner approval or, you know, miss something, missed up with a contractor, those mistakes have gone, you know, almost virtually away. And it's because of that laser focus. Um, you know, it's things like that. So even on the client side, instead of having, you know, a couple people helping clients, now we have eight people helping clients now they're becoming portfolio managers, which, what does that mean? That's a paradigm shift of let's wait for the client to ask us questions, you know, and help get the questions answered versus sending them out rehab updates and leasing updates and, you know, accounting updates and different things. So that's the model we're moving to um, literally this month of just, you know, one point of contact and just focusing on the kind of the proactive approach to management versus the reactive. Got it. Love it. So in terms of how the remote team actually contributes to that, um, some of the practical details folks are going to want to know just the obvious one, where are these folks actually located? Uh, we have the majority uh, is in the Philippines and then we have, we've just started using uh, virtual employees from uh, Mexico and then we've had a handful from India. So we've had three different countries. Interesting. And do you have any early thoughts, opinions, or feedback on the differences within those labor markets? You know, still, still trying to figure that out. You know, I think, uh, um, and I've heard this on several different podcasts and I feel like it's holding true. Um, India tends to be better, you know, with accounting and kind of tactical, like, um, uh, processing, you know, information in the Philippines, very good with customer service and empathy and helping clients and helping tenants, you know, um, getting solutions for those guys. So just a different in Mexico, I'm still, I'm still trying to figure that one out as far as just what what we're seeing difference, uh, in that country versus the others. But, um, yeah, so that's what I've seen so far. All right. So the structure for the teams that you just mentioned is that you've got a, a couple of folks in a given market. You have a supervisor that is based in the same market. Mm -hmm. What does that mean in terms of how the team members are organized within that country? Like, for example, do you have a Philippines office or is it, are they remote within the Philippines? Everyone that we have right now is remote within the Philippines. So we've had some friends that tried to have like a central office and that kind of stuff. And, you know, they tried it for a few months and went back. I just don't see uh, for us specifically, you know, short term, you know, why it would make sense to go to a uh, uh, the central office. I think we get a lot of synergies around having them work from their home and being able to, you know, sort of spending the time traveling and uh, to an office and get involved in office politics as you know, that can happen. You know, they're just solely focused on getting work done and, and helping contribute. So how does your management and oversight of somebody in the Philippines look different from somebody that is remote within the States? I, I mean, I just don't see really, there's no difference. I think, you know, um, we utilize Google Hangouts a, a ton, you know, for them to chat and, um, with our Memphis members as well as, you know, in the Philippines or India or whatever. Um, but, you know, I, I just don't, I think the way the world's gone, it's, it's just global. And so, you know, a friend of mine was talking about an employee moving to uh, from South Carolina, North Carolina. And I was like, he was thinking about letting her work. And I was like, it's the same thing. You know, it's the same, 
Um, it's just distance. You know, that's all we're talking about. So, um, is is English proficiency a requirement? Yes, for sure. And what level of English proficiency? Uh, yeah, just I mean, solid English. I don't know if we have a really grading scale, but if, as long as we can understand them and um, they can communicate well, um, we have not had. I mean. Truthfully, specifically in the Philippines, we have not had any concerns with, uh, you know, language barrier or, you know, emails. There's, there's a few key words you have to, to, to tweak on how they respond to emails specifically. Um, but other than that, that, that hadn't been an issue. All right. Well, that's a great question. Do you have any of these remote team members outside of the States doing client-facing work? Client-facing communications, I should say. Oh yeah. No, no, no. That's our, we are 90% of our client communications is done from remote team members. And is there any kind of a bridge or a filter? You said on occasion emails need to be corrected. Is that just a training issue or um, are, are any of those communications being filtered before they actually go out? Uh, no, we we've, we've literally learned on the fly. Um, you know, it'd be simple stuff like um, Mr. Stevens, M I S T E R. Ah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like just little yeah. nuances like that, that you're just like, that just is a, it's a clue for uh, a client right. to be like, why is he calling me Mr. M I S T? You know, that's just unusual in the States. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's just a simple email blast to the team. Hey, let's change that to MR or, you know what I mean? The first name or, you know, that kind of thing. So just little tweaks like that, nothing significant. It's just been small little tweaks. So I'm going to keep pushing you on the differences here. Yeah. Well, here's one difference is that you have these folks managed by somebody here stateside. Um, mm -hmm. That obviously is not a requirement in reverse. You don't have your stateside teams being managed by, by somebody outside. Why is that necessary? So that's a great question. I think what we've decided is that as a team and right, wrong, or indifferent, everybody's got their own, you know, secret sauce or, you know, opinions, but we've kind of said remote team members are more tactical, you know, day to day, get it done. And the people that we have at our corporate office will be more strategic. Mm -hmm. So we want the strategic, you know, local so they can meet together, band together and just figure out the next steps to make a stronger, faster, more efficient, more cost effective, better quality, less mistakes, and then disseminate that down to the remote team members um, as we learn, you know, and grow together. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction that you've made there. Is that criteria that you have hired against, or are you saying that you think that's just a practical reality for remote team members? Um, no, actually. I mean, it's a great question. And I don't know where you're going with that. I think we've actually, um, we've, you know, started at the core assist business itself is actually being ran by a remote team member. So right now there's nobody, you know, a figurehead in Memphis that's overseeing that business. It's actually being done by a remote team member. So our mind shift in itself is changing, um, as we go, but up until this point, it has been Memphis, you mm -hmm. know, corporate, strategic versus um, remote team member, more tactical. So I think we'll see more of that, to be honest with you, as we, as we learn the systems and learn how to hire and who to look for. Um, I think we will have more and more strategic thinkers uh, 
you know, involved uh, remote. Hey, Daniel Craig here with Profit Coach. You've probably heard Jordan talk on the podcast about the NARPM accounting standards that we authored on behalf of NARPM. This groundbreaking initiative standardizes financial reporting for the property management industry, and we're committed to helping as many companies as possible get on the standard this year. If you'd like to get converted, we'd love to help with one of our two conversion packages. The first gets you converted on a go-forward basis only, and the second actually converts you on a historical basis going back two full years, and that comes with a comprehensive financial performance report that provides a deep dive analysis of your financial performance in over 30 financial KPIs and compares your performance to key industry financial benchmarks. Go to pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS for details and be sure to mention this ad for a special 10% off discount. That's pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS. Yeah, and I'm not leading anywhere other than simply trying to understand what the final frontier of potential in this model looks like. And I certainly don't fault you for progressively moving toward this as opposed to doing it all at once. I mean, how far do you think you could take this model, though? Here's here's a great question that mm-hmm. for me always comes up as it applies to thinking about the efficiency of the company, uh, the vision, the overall question of how can I get out of the way and not use myself and my ego and the fact that I'm the founder to always be the bottleneck of what is possible. What is the key contribution that you and Douglas make and what gets what happens if you guys get hit by a bus in the next couple months? So for Douglas and I, I think we're trying to be more, you know, trusted advisors and we've we made the decision over the last two years that each business has a manager running it. And so I think, you know, our next goal is to have a CEO and COO and um, we're down to just level tens, you know, the traction meetings with uh, key leadership once a week. And other than that, you know, it's up to each business, you know, we're, we're, we've incentivized and pay um, each manager and, and business unit leader to, uh, run the business like their own kind of entrepreneurship, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's kind of where Douglas and I, you know, and quite frankly, it is a, uh, from a cash flow and profit side, it's a, it's a, it's a tougher, you know, uh, road to, to hoe, if you will, if that's what you want to do. And I, we talked about this, I think in the maintenance side, like when we had that podcast, you know, a year or so ago, some people want to be in that tactical stuff in the day to day. And, Douglas and I enjoy just building businesses and creating opportunities and connecting people. And, and um, we enjoy the build part. We don't necessarily enjoy the running part, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. So you mentioned having worked with Culture Index. Their names come up a mm-hmm. couple of times. When I think about what's most exciting about running the business to me, it's providing opportunity and creating velocities such that competent people with bright futures want to work here because they know there's actually somewhere for them to go. The company has to be and do and look a certain way in order for that to actually be true. The growth that you're talking about and the scale, et cetera, seems to lend itself towards that. Where is the company at right now in terms of um, scale, either in terms of units or revenue? 
So it's funny to your point about just being the day to day. We looked up um, about a month ago and, and Russell who runs the maintenance and the property management company told us we had 150 employees. So um, we have 150 employees. We managed 2,500 doors. We actually expanded into Jackson, Tennessee. So we're actually in you know two uh, markets and looking to do a third. So um, that's kind of where we're at now. I think we, you know, with 150 employees, by the way, that's ha- half are remote and half are local, just as a, you know, aside. What percentage of revenue comes from the management business versus the maintenance ballpark? Probably, well, for us, it's probably a, um, a third is property management and then two thirds maintenance. But, you know, I think one thing that, that we've done is, you know, we, we do maintenance for 2,500 units for Crestcore, but our maintenance company also does about another 2,000 units for other property management companies. So we've, we've figured out how to leverage our technology and our efficiencies for our internal business that we end up going outside. So it's a little bit skewed, you know, I would think if it was, it was, if in, in the other scenario, it'd probably be 50, 50, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, um, probably management maintenance, but it's probably a third or maybe a little bit less. So. Got it. Okay. So these on back to the remote side mm-hmm. of things in terms of the impetus or the pressure to build this out, people feel pressure within the organization in different ways. Some people would express a need financially. They'd be talking about labor efficiency or cost as a percentage of labor. Other people would express it in terms of uh, higher, lower quality of service. What was, what would you say was like the pressing trigger that caused you guys to want to do this, this restructure? Was it more what you saw as a financial need or a client service quality? So it was actually both, to be honest with you. It was, um, we, you know, we had a tough time hitting margins with the, the old structure. Um, and we also had a tough time finding employees at the levels that we could pay um, to do, you know, the job that we needed to be done. And so, um, you know, by hiring remote, it's actually gotten us, you know, more laser focused, better coverage, uh, hired employees that, that, care and really want to work and, and want to do a great job, no matter that the pay scale is different, you know, for, for where they live, they're making, you know, middle income or better wages, to be honest with you, as, as you get into this and kind of figure this out. So we're, you know, we like to think of ourselves as, you know, you mentioned earlier about building business and creating jobs and we're, we're just creating jobs. just on a global scale now, not just local. So we're trying to make a, a, a global impact on hiring employees and, you know, and then that plays into, you know, running our business more efficiently and effectively and, and all that good stuff. So when you mentioned making margin, what about all the infrastructure that presumably was required to actually get this up and running? If it was easy to go hire remote team members in Mexico or in the Philippine, Philippines, it would be more common to do it directly. Clearly, mm-hmm. there's a lot of hurdles to get over. Walk me through uh, you and Douglas kind of hatcheting your way through the jungle as you got to the point where now this apparently is just kind of a seamless, very fluid process. What were some of the stumbles along the way? Um, you know, the stumbles, um, not having good, um, 
standard operating procedures. So it's only as only as good as what you you know put out there to for an employee to do. Um, you had to um, provide additional training. So one thing that we saw with property management is that you know you bring in somebody to do collections, for example, they really need to understand all of the business and not just collections. So we've we actually do a rotation. They go through each department for several days and work in that department, and so. Because you can think about somebody living in the Philippines or Mexico or India, wherever that, you know, housing and, and tenants and all that kind of stuff is going to mean something different to them than what it does in Memphis, Tennessee. So that's probably the biggest stumbling block that I've seen is just like training them to understand, you know, uh, how the house process works, you know, from vacancy to tenanted to collection rent to evictions and all that stuff. Um, and just the, the, um, thinking how, you know, thinking like an owner would is, is another big deal to me. I think, you know, we, we tend to answer things literally. And so we always try to, we're trying to teach our employees to answer two steps ahead. And some of that, some of that comes with that culture index. We talked about hiring the right people that can think that way. So that's part of our navigation is, you know, if you don't have a filter, whether it be, culture index or disc or Colby or any of these, you know, something to give you a gauge of what kind of employee, what, what behaviors does that employee, whether they're remote or not, you know, what kind of behaviors they're going to exhibit. Um, you know, you could be putting a square peg in a round hole. So when you just flippantly say, I'm gonna hire a virtual employee, that's like saying, well, I'm gonna hire somebody that's done property management. But like we started when we noticed not first started, that was just the wrong approach mm-hmm. that we had. Yeah. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. I mean, if anything, it really does commodify the labor, right? In some sense, it's kind of like I'm going to hire a donkey or hire a mule. A donkey is a donkey. A mule is a mule. It's, it's, right. it's, a, it's a pack animal. Humans are a bit more nuanced than that. And the nature of the, the job or the function or the role within the company can look quite a bit differently. Give me some more context on using culture index and how that informs the approach at what point in the hiring process does that insert itself? Uh, as soon as somebody applies. So we use it as a filtering mechanism. So we know with culture index, you create profiles of what you want the employee behaviors to look like. And it's a set of dots, you know, how autonomous, how social or uh, analytical they are, how fast paced or slow paced, how detailed, um, all that kind of lines up into a certain profile and there's like 18 different profiles. And so we just know, you know, in certain jobs that, uh, you know, like our guy that goes, does cold calling, he should not be an administrative task person, but he's great at cold calling. So, you know, but it's high, his social is really high. He's very fast paced and he's got some detail that can, you know, keep up with his notes of who he's talked to and when. And so we knew that on the front end before we hired him and it, you know, he's proven to be successful in that role. So that's just one example, but. All right. So you're using it on the front side to actually filter, meaning that folks are actually taking a, some kind of a survey or a test. Correct. Yep. A survey. All right. And does there part of you that wonders if um, that's maybe too narrow or do you feel like that that's just proven itself and it's sufficiently reliable that everything goes through that pipe? It's sufficiently reliable for sure. Yes. If, 
we've, we've been wrong as far as hiring somebody with a profile that we thought would be good, you know, but if we've hired somebody that, that went against the profile, it's always been, we messed up, you know what I mean? Like it was a mistake. We should not have hired them because the profile was not what we wanted. So what are the other factors outside of the, a fit score wise? Let's say the, the score wise, it's a hundred percent fit. What other things have, have caused the hire not to work out? Um, just a little bit, you know, you got to learn some cultural differences. Um, uh, you know, some people don't like reporting to certain, certain people or, or whatever, you know, some, some of the typical stuff that you're going to have, whether it's in Memphis or not. So, um, attitudes, um, you know, family issues, you know, stuff like that. So then you start just getting into like the normal HR type stuff, you know, that that you have to work through. So, um, that is no different than, you know, being in the States and hiring somebody local. Got it. So as we kind of walk through and navigate this conversation around remote team members, compensation is always going to come up. The compensation conversation is in part informed by how much responsibility folks are going to take on. And typically for VAs, at least, it ain't much, right? And people are trying to pay very little. You mentioned in the conversation previously wanting to have folks get get paid a... Um, let's say a middle market wage contextual mm-hmm. to where they're actually living. What other nuance or detail can you provide around how you approach compensation for remote team members? Uh, to, to us, it's no different. I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to set up levels, you know, entry level, um, supervisory manager, you know, a trainer, you know, so there's different like you know, buckets that we have that can lead to more compensation. So, um, we're still working that out to be honest with you. Like, I think that's, that's something we're still trying to figure out, like what those numbers should basically we want, we want ranges per level entry level, you know, between X and Y and, you know, and on and up the chain. So to us, we don't see that as any difference. You know, the more that somebody, you know, I, I'm from the old school of just the more value you create, the more you'll get paid. And so what is that? We just got to kind of find and define what that value creation is for us. Um, on the remote team member side. So the levels that you just articulated right now, do folks have a concept of what the pay scale may look like over time when they get hired? Like, is there any way for them to kind of forecast or see what the pay opportunity could look like five years down the road? Or is that part, is that something that you're saying you're working to expose? Yeah. Working to expose for sure. Yep. Got it. And that is something that we do internally with, our team members in the lead simple side within the engineering department. It's kind of like what you're talking about by providing a letter grade of A through F and then exposing the expectations, the amount of for the job role, the amount of time that should be spent in that role and the pay associated with it. We're kind of externalizing our thinking about the overall path and it really makes it a lot more, I guess the idea is that it makes it more merit-based rather than my ability to negotiate a raise-based. And that's really, particularly for a product-led team, what we're wanting to do is to have more of a a meritocracy. 
And I think that that would apply more broadly than software, but the truth is I haven't done it uh, outside of there. So we'll, gotcha. we'll, we'll have to see. So yeah. back to some of the other kind of common questions that come up here, the, the workflow, the tasks, what does the software setup look like? I mean, is this one of those situations where you're trying to check people's screens every 10 seconds to see what, what they're doing? Like, how do you manage the, just, just the day-to-day workflow of operations? Are there, is there any additional software you're using, or was it, was it all the same stuff that you were using to manage um, stateside before? Most of it's, you know, we're using PropertyWare. Um, we implemented TeamDesk, so a ticketing software. So, like, for specifically to owners, you know, they email us for questions or concerns, we actually ticket every one of those. So we can actually see, um, uh, you know, what the um, average response rate time, how long it took them to, re- to respond, how many emails it took, all those kind of things. So we can coach up when you see somebody that, you know, is taking too long or whatever. But we don't, we're not taking screenshots, you know, that's something that we've looked at. But, you know, so far we just haven't had that, that big of an issue with people just quote unquote not showing up. Um, we are so busy and a lot, just so much going on and the, the train has to keep moving that, um, um, you know, you, you really, you, I mean, the team knows when somebody's not participating or not, you know, engaged. So that kind of works itself out the, the natural way. Um, and then, you know, so every, every, like even like phone calls for maintenance for, for tenants calling in, you know, every, um, we track all the calls, how many calls, average time per call per RTM. So you kind of see who's carrying more weight or less weight. And then you kind of dig in a why the, um, why there's a difference, you know, and there, there might be because they have, you know, another, another responsibility they're helping with or something like there might be a real good reason or is it truly performance issue or whatever. So we're definitely trying to get down to that traction method where everybody's got a scorecard, you know, like as far as a measurable, that we're holding each you know, remote or local team member accountable. It doesn't matter. Everybody has their own numbers that they're, they're accountable for. Yeah, I love that. So back to EOS, we talked about that last time around. Mm-hmm. This, is some, this sounds like something that you've only further doubled down on between now and then. How would you describe how what EOS has looked like or the, the purpose that it has served has kind of matured over time. How, how, how far were you three years, four years into using about, EOS? Yeah, about three years. Yeah. All right. So how has it evolved over time? Um, you know, it started out just, uh, you know, it was really Douglas and I pushing and driving. And so that was kind of like the version 1.0. And now, you know, each business has their own, level tens and Douglas and I are slowly uh, pulling out of the individual business level tens and more going towards a high level, you know, just overarching for all the businesses level 10. So getting more and more high level for us, as far as the metrics where we're more focused on, you know, net revenue, net margin, number of clients, you know, those kind of numbers versus uh, how many leases we did or how many renewals or, you know, how many work orders we completed. Does that make sense? Like, absolutely. Yeah. So we're, those numbers now are driving, driving down to the department level and dogs are extracting ourselves from that 
department level to more of a high level global for, for overarching for all the businesses. What do you do to continue to develop yourself as a leader to not experience a Peter Principle situation where come to find out the company was expanding, but you weren't like, how do you continue to develop yourself? Uh, you know, Doug's and I both have this passion for learning and uh, I was just had breakfast with a guy this morning. We were talking about that. Like you always have to be, you know, learning and part of learning too is teaching others. And so I, I spent a lot of time coaching others and, and giving back and like helping others try to get into real estate or, you know, get into uh, building a business and what you actually find out, you know, especially um, the younger generation, um, you know, so I'm mid forties. Now you start coaching somebody in their thirties you actually learn a ton just by helping them because of the questions they ask and the things they're doing. And does that make sense? Like they're sharpening you as you're actually trying to help, help sharpen them. So, um, you know, long staying in groups, Vistage, um, which is a business owner group that we're part of. Um, so yeah, I mean, just always, you know, just always talking to people and meeting people. I mean, every, you know, I have lunches every day with somebody, um, either a peer or mentor or, somebody I'm mentoring. So just trying to be uh, intentional is probably the big, big key word there. So as a business leader and owner, what has become unacceptable to you over time? For a lot of folks, what produces the growth is not necessarily that they read a book and they had this aspirational idea that they immediately put in place. A lot of times it's pain that is the forcing function that requires us to actually change. So can you think of any um, tasks or job roles and responsibilities within the last 12 months that you've just determined were not a fit for your unique ability and have kind of like had enough is enough kind of mentality and and forced yourself to to offload and delegate? Wow. That's a, That's a great question. I think um, my team, our team has been pushing to own more and more of the business. And so, you know, we, we've, we've been trying to, Doug and I have read and listened to a lot of podcasts around strategic coach and really trying to help each other. And, you know, I think uh, for me, I love, you know, um, coaching people and I love doing deals, you know, like, putting a deal together where it be a new property management company or a package of houses or um, creating the, the opportunities to create a new business. So that's kind of where my focus is. And, you know, Douglas loves connecting people. You know, if, if he knows Jordan's looking for X and he meets somebody that needs X, he's going to connect you guys and make that introduction and, you know, not really looking for anything in return, but just, you know, just trying to help the world move forward. So, you know, I think for me personally, I've gotten out of um, getting more, more and more out of client relations, you know, like helping the clients. I'm trying to let the team they're really, and they're trying to push me to that level of, Hey guys, we got this, Dan, you don't need to be involved with this client, you know, issue or concern or, or whatever that might be. We'll, we'll take care of it. You go work on the things that you're good at. And so as a business owner, that's been hard for me to let go because, you know, you, you build this thing from scratch. You got you know, a lot of pride and, you know, ownership in yourself of just, you know, your, your, your reputation. And so letting that go is, is, has been, been tough, but it helps the team grow, you know? So one of the things that I've tried to do to help that is just try to not be in the office, which sounds kind of weird, but 
you know, if I'm not here, they can't ask me questions and I can't be in, you know, <laughs> you know I just learned that a long time ago. And I, you know, you know, my manufacturing history, you know, so when I was at the plant, if I was walking the floor, you know, I would get t- stopped 10 times to ask how to do something. But if you don't, if you're not around as much, you know, those guys figure it out, you know, they make solutions. Now that might be the wrong solution. And that's where the coaching opportunity comes in to coach them on how to make it better. But, um, we'd rather people make decisions and fail versus either waiting on us or make no decision at all. Yeah, that's great, man. If you hired the right people, they are capable of making decisions on their own and you need them to do so in order to get the kind of performance that the company needs in order to free you up to do the thing you need to do in order to build the bigger future. So it's really, um, it's a discipline, but it's a discipline that is required to have that bigger and brighter future. What I found in my career is that by having clarity over time that I wanted to do something bigger than one specific entity, it allowed me to be busy enough and to behave in such a way that it did create space for other people to step up. And sometimes it was too much space. Like sometimes what it also created was it exposed um, a need and a deficit that couldn't get papered over with my late night effort. Like it just, it exposed the, the fact that there was actually a need to actually make new hire and put that person in place. I love that you're pursuing that path and that, um, you're operating at that higher level. I would love to just kind of round out the conversation, yeah. talking a little bit about finance and the approach that you guys apply to actually managing the numbers within the business. I'd say the vast majority of property management entrepreneurs don't have any kind of a strong finance background. I don't know if that's the case for you or not, but I'm curious how your approach to finance and your financial IQ has evolved over time. Like, What were the numbers... How has your awareness and how is the numbers that you're look, looking at different two years ago from now? You know, I think with property management, you can have a hundred different things you track. Um, and I think that when we, Douglas and I first started, we were trying to track all those. Um, so I think what we've evolved from is like, number one, trying to figure out how to track them and, and that they're accurate. And then number two, what are the only the three to five that we want to track that are most important to us? And then, and we have to trust that the team is then tracking the rest of those numbers. So um, to us, you know, net margin is probably the biggest um, number that we're, we're, we're laser focused on. You know, we just, we truly do don't, we just truly believe that if you're going to be in a business, it really needs to operate at a 15% or greater net margin. And if you, if you can't get there, then you probably, you know, should you be in it? I just don't, you know, that's to be determined, but you know, that's, that's kind of probably, you know, if you ask one number, that'd probably be the one number that we're laser focused on that each business at least gives us a return on investment of 15%. And so when you say this, the each business, Mm -hmm. are you running each of these? uh, These are three separate uh, sets of books. Is that correct? Well, we have, you know, we have our personal property portfolio. So, and then we have Crest Core property management, then we have city light. Um, then we separated. So to your point, since we last talked on the podcast, we had separated city light into two entities, city light and core build and city light 
does just maintenance. So that'd be like maintenance, like uh, plumbers and HVAC and core build is your rehabs and rent readies. And it was because it, it, to, I guess I'm answering it as I'm talking, but you know, we need to be laser focused on determining what the numbers are for that business. And it was hard to tell maintenance versus construction because you'd use construction guys for maintenance and maintenance guys for construction right. and it would get all intermingled and you couldn't ever tell which one was really doing, you know, making money. Now that we're starting to separate them, you see, Oh wow. Maintenance is very profitable and doing well construction, man. If you don't have the volume for the, the overhead you have and all that stuff, this is us. Per, I'm talking about for us personally with your estimators and project managers and field techs and all that stuff that you got to have a certain valid volume where it's even worth doing. And so by separating the businesses, if you got, you know, listeners out there, you know, the more you can separate them and maybe even if you just, just can separate them by department so that the numbers are very clear for that department, right? right. you know what I mean? Versus jumbled into one P and L, you know, and I've really seen this while like looking at other property management companies to buy, you know, they're so mingled that you can't tell what's what. And so that's one thing that we've really learned is like, just keep splitting that, that apart so that you can focus in on each business. Um, even though they're all related and you could really sum them up into one, the more you can divvy it out, the better. Yeah, that's great. I mean, obviously breaking things into a separate business is a heavy handed approach if all you're wanting is financial clarity, but it does speak to the fact that financial clarity is the function of accounting. There's a lot of folks that still orient towards accounting as something you need to do to understand your your tax obligation. In reality, the core functions are actually providing financial clarity. Who do you have internally, team members-wise, that carries water there for you? Do you have somebody acting in, in an actual CFO title? It's uh, we just hired somebody that is acting in that role. Yes, so that that's new to us. Um, just started probably in December, I believe. So, and they will have you know we we rolled it up. What we end up doing is having a holding company um, that that overseeing all the businesses. So we're actually going to a shared service approach. So any, any accounting or it or HR is going into the holding company and will and will disperse the, um, the cost to each business based on their revenue. So again, more clarity for us because it was just getting so intermingled with, you know, overhead and, and where does it go and all that stuff. So we're, we're actually pulling that together and separating it and then it treating it as a cost, what do we call a cost center, um, you know, zero, some, some dollars, but that cost gets disseminated to each business based on that business's revenue. Wow. Fascinating. So your companies have companies that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Did you guys have some outside counsel in terms of a um, CPA or legal that kind of walked you through that? Definitely have strategic partners that we lean on and, and, you know, our local accounting firm is, is, is we, we chose an accounting firm that, that does, you know, business for much for, larger real estate companies than us. So we try to <laughs> ride their coattails, if you will, and learn from how they've set things up. And it took us a while to figure out that the holding company was the way to go. Um, so that, cause, and that was kind of driven by the banks wanting to have a global number, you know, versus 10 or 15 different individual numbers for each, in the, you know, each business. So it's definitely been a journey, but we've leaned on banks and the accountants and, um, mentors to teach us, you know, kind of how to set that up for sure. Hmm. 
Interesting. Well, this is, this is uh, stimulating, man. There's a lot more to talk about. Obviously, we could have gone on for a couple more hours, but we yeah. don't have that time. The next time you're in Austin, let's definitely break bread. I want to hear more about this holding company strategy. It sounds like one of those advanced tactics that's going to not be relevant for 90% of, the, <laughs> of those listening, but it still is really intriguing. So I'm yeah. picking up what you're laying down. Um, let's go ahead and round out the interview. What I normally ask people is whether or not they believe entrepreneurs are born or bred. You've answered that question before. So instead, I'm going to ask you to give some insight on some inspiration as a lifelong learner. Talk me through some resources that have been really impactful for you, either over your career and maybe more recently. What have you read or listened to that's some big inspiration? You know, my, the, when I first started out in management and operations, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends, Influence People was probably the most, you know, influential book that I've read probably three times now and will push to have my kids read. Um, the last year has been strategic coach and all the podcasts related to Dan Sullivan and his, mm. uh, his coaching just because he's so focused on helping you only work on what you can do and what you should be doing and what you'd love to do. So when you operate in that space, you know, and it's a mindset shift and it's, it's, it's definitely a, a stepping over into a, a different league of just, you know, um, only working what I love to do and what only I can do. You know, if I'm doing $20 an hour work, you know, throughout the day, my business is really suffering. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm holding my business back. I need to be working on, you know, quote unquote, $500 type work, you know, $500, $500 an hour type work, not $20 an hour per work. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. So that, that'd be my, that my key for this past year is probably strategic coach. All right. Shout out to Dan Sullivan. Yeah. Absolutely. I cannot get enough of that guy. He is a, a fascinating character. And I was commenting on another podcast that his selective incompetence is fascinating to me. When you hear him talk, it's really clear that there is so much that the guy is just clueless about, like technology, for example. And it doesn't matter because that's doesn't not matter. His unique ability. And that's not where he's trying to make a contribution. And uh, if I remember correctly, the guy said he outsources driving. He doesn't drive himself yeah. around. He's probably a terrible driver. But you know what? He is laser focused on what really matters for him. Well, that's just like, and I'll give you one quick one before we leave is, you know, I've always kind of wanted to write a book, you know, uh, just to, to kind of my journey through, you know, manufacturing and real estate and that kind of stuff. And that just seems so daunting. But what I learned from him is like, he's an author, not the writer. <laughs> Loose, uh, loosely defined when you hear him yeah. get into that. Yeah. So, yeah. It's just, it's, so it's like, that was a, like a light bulb moment for me. It's like, wait a second, I can get the content. That's easy. But, you know, having somebody else to write it, it's going to be, you know, that, that was, that was a pretty cool thing to think about and just, you know, for the future, you know, put that nugget away. So, yeah, absolutely. That, so uh, what I recall hearing him talk about that, he basically describes the value chain with the production of any good or service. There's a value chain of all the constituent pieces of service delivery. And so he he breaks down and he starts talking about there's one guy that comes up with the idea. There's somebody else that produces the outline. There's somebody else that does the artwork, design, distribution, et cetera. And he basically describes going from everything and then working himself back, 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 back. Until right now, 
he's basically coming up with the concept and ha- having a couple meetings to flesh it out verbally and everything else is being done for the guy. But guess whose name yeah. is on the book? It's his. That's right. It's, there you go, my man. <laughs> well, hey, thanks again for coming on. Yeah. I hope folks got some value out of this. If folks want to learn more about Core Assist, what's the best place for them to go? Yes, yeah, a great question. Just uh, I would start with russell.alt, A-L-T, at coreassist.com. Or you can check us out on LinkedIn at Core Assist. So those are two quick, easy ways to get a hold of us. All right. Check it out. Well, we'll keep eyes on you as the next player in this remote team member space. Interested to hear where yeah. you take it. Thanks again for yeah. coming on and uh, we'll, let's stay in touch. All right. Thanks for having me.